1: and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com ACAST.
2: Loose Ends The Singh Family Tragedy has been created specifically for adult audiences. Listener discretion is advised. There is graphic depiction of violence and murder, frank portrayal of sexuality, and at times excessive language. The thoughts and opinions in this podcast are mine. This is Episode 7, Murder and Mayhem in the South Pacific. My name is Graham Crowley. Thank you for listening. I received the following email from Amanda. This is part of what she said. Good afternoon. I have just finished listening to episode 1 of your Loose Ends podcast. I have to disagree with you on Max being labelled a liar. Ever since the first day I met Max, I have always felt comfortable, and he was always straight up and honest with me. I myself have known Max Seeker and his family since 2000, and I have had the opportunity to meet the late Neil Masing whilst visiting Max on a couple of occasions. From day one of hearing about this tragedy, I've always believed, and I will continue to believe, that Max Seeker is innocent, and just hope soon enough it will be made public that he can be pardoned. Thanks for your feedback, Amanda. As far as Max Seeker being labelled a liar, I was able to confirm various lies he told from a number of sources. As for Max Seeker being innocent or guilty of the murders, I have no idea. He was found guilty by the jury. And yes, I have found problems with the evidence, but that by itself is not proof of innocence. Thanks for your feedback. Until up to one week ago, episode 7 was to be about investigations conducted by Queensland police in Fiji, and a matter that arose in the Solomon Islands. I have been persuaded to keep the Fiji investigations for another episode and instead focus on Solomon Islands in episode 7. Do the matters that occurred in the Solomon Islands have any connection to the Singh murders? I will let you, the listening community, make that call. I am interested in your feedback and thoughts on the subject. Were the Queensland Police aware of the matters I am going to raise? I do not believe they were. I cannot find one word, one sentence, in the thousands of documents I have read to say that they had knowledge of them. And if they were aware of them, would they have considered them connected to the Singh murders? That is a matter for someone else to decide. How did I learn of the events in the Solomon Islands? It started with a question to, Hey Google, It wasn't as simple as that, but that is where it all started. The person I am about to speak of is a violent, dangerous criminal. Or at least was. Perhaps he has been rehabilitated. He is now an Australian citizen or maybe permanent resident. I'm not sure. He, they, were not persons of interest in the Singh murder investigation. Nor suspects. I have spoken to two people close to this person. Both warned me off. Told me to forget it. To walk away. They told me I did not know who I was dealing with. Maybe he is not rehabilitated. I gave long consideration to not broadcasting this episode of the podcast. To drop it. Instead, I made contact with one of the lead detectives in Operation Bravo Settler and alerted him to the information that has come into my possession. Call it an insurance policy. The man I am referring to was not convicted of any offence in the Solomon Islands in relation to the matters I raise, so I cannot name him. And there is no evidence at this time to connect him to the Singh murders, so I have to respect his presumption of innocence and be careful to keep his identity secret but what a story. I call this man Joe Cool. The following comments come from a person who studied the logging industry in the Solomon Islands in the 1990s and completed a PhD on the subject. I cannot acknowledge him as I have previously explained. He wrote this. This story could not have been invented, not even by the brilliant crime novelist John Grisham but it actually happened in the Solomon Islands. This is the story of an assassination, attempted assassinations, a plane crash and the escape of the mastermind. It revolved around the logging industry and a web of relationships between logging companies, foreign businessmen, politicians, the state and ordinary Solomon Islanders. I do not have the full details of Joe Cool's deeds in the Solomon Islands. Foreign country, 30 years ago. But this is what I do have. In 1990, Joe Cool had been living and working in the Solomon Islands for some years. He was running a company logging timber. His company owed a man we shall call Mr. T, 300,000 US dollars. The relationship between Mr. T and Joe Cool had soured. Joe Cool could not or would not, repay the debt. The matter had been through the courts, and the debt remained outstanding. Mr T was pressing for payment through his solicitor, whom we shall call Jennifer. To persuade her to cease further debt recovery action, Jennifer's car was firebombed. Court action continued. Jennifer's office was broken into to steal evidence relating to the debt. Court action continued. Matters then escalated, significantly and violently. Mr T was shot dead when he answered a late night knock on his door in Honiara, a bullet to the head. Police arrested a man for the murder, whom we shall call Mr A. Mr A confessed and implicated a man in the murder, we shall call Mr B. A said B paid him money to murder Mr T Police arrested Mr B who confessed and in turn implicated Joe Cool B told police Joe Cool paid him $50,000 to arrange the murder Police arrested Joe Cool who denied any involvement in the crime he said the $50,000 payment to B was merely a loan Both A and B were convicted of the murder and sentenced to life imprisonment. Whilst awaiting trial, both Mr. B and Joe Cool were kept in custody. Mr. B decided to turn informant and give evidence against Joe Cool. It was alleged that Joe Cool solicited a prison guard to murder Mr. B and paid him $5,000 to commit the murder. Instead of killing Mr. B, the prison guard informed his superiors and Mr B was flown from Guadalcanal to Kirikira Island for his personal safety. Joe Cool was charged with conspiracy to murder and held in custody. In September 1991, Mr B was being flown back from Kirikira to Honiara to give evidence at Joe Cool's trial when the plane crashed en route. All 15 people on board were killed. It was the Solomon Islands' worst civil air disaster. The case against Joe Cool plotting to kill Mr. B collapsed, and he was released from prison. Joe Cool was acquitted of conspiracy to murder Mr. T, as the court accepted his claim that the money he paid Mr. B was just a loan. Joe Cool fled to Brisbane, Australia, soon after. It was obvious the plane was a long way off course on a short 30 minute flight. Between Kirakira and Honiara. Instead of veering right after leaving Kirakira and flying over the ocean, it veered left and crashed into the third highest mountain on the Solomons. I was told of rumours that B was paid money to crash the plane and his family received a large cash settlement. There was a rumour Mr. B's family's lifestyle changed significantly after the crash for the better. There was another rumour that Mr B's body was found in the co-pilot's seat of the wreckage. I immediately found difficulties obtaining the Civil Aviation Authority Solomon Islands, Cassie, report in relation to the crash. The report had disappeared and had never been made public. Emails to Cassie and the Minister for Transport Solomon Islands went unanswered. Phone calls were not returned. I tried to contact the Solomon Islands National Library. Letters to five email addresses associated with the library went unanswered. A search of newspaper databases returned no information. A Honiara newspaper article I viewed dated 1999 reported the air crash report had been completed and the government was awaiting its delivery. Hansard, the official recorder of proceedings of the Solomon Islands Parliament, records only a brief mention of the air crash in 2008. I enlisted the help of a Honiara-based solicitor, but no further information was forthcoming. After further emails, I eventually received a seven-word email from Cassie. Sir, I do not have the report. Further emails requesting details of who to contact, were ignored. Inquiries with CASA, the Australian Civil Aviation Authority, revealed they were not involved. Inquiries with Cairns, the Civil Aviation Authority New Zealand, revealed they had investigated the accident on behalf of the Solomon Islands government in 1993 and forwarded their completed report to the government. Cairns referred me to the Minister of Transport, Solomon Islands. Unfortunately, Cairns did not hold her a copy of the report, they told me. There was a young Australian woman on the flight, Norlene Feibig, who was an Australian volunteer aid worker living and working on Kirikira Island. Her parents live in Adelaide, and I was fortunate to speak with her father, Eric Feibig. Eric, thanks for your time today. You lost a daughter in that air crash in Solomon Islands. Can you tell me about her, please?
3: Yes, it was a very sad time for us. We were going to go over and see the work that she was doing, teaching at a school, a secondary school in in Edwaman, Peru. And uh, she was flying in to meet us, and uh, she just didn't arrive. Mm. We found out then that the plane crashed on its approach into uh, Honiara Airport, Henderson Airport.
2: I imagine it was some time before you found out that there was no survivors
3: it was uh, the following Sunday. That happened on the Friday. We found out on a Sunday that uh, there were no survivors. Oh. So we, we were very much uh, aware that this was going to be the case anyway, fairly really early on. But you probably lived in hope, right? Yeah, the, the point was that we heard that the plane was 60 miles out approaching the airport, and that was when they lost contact with us.
2: And you wrote a book about it, right?
3: Yes, um... We felt that we had to do something for our daughter because she'd done such a wonderful job over there. She was teaching uh, these children home economics and she was actually teaching them how to make best use of the food they were doing and sew their own clothes and that sort of thing. And uh, we thought the best thing to do was to write this book uh, and also as a a book to help people who had lost a daughter or a child at, at an early age
2: Eric, what do you know about the cause of the air crash?
3: Well, we were fairly certain that the the plane was just off course. Um, It seemed as though the pilot, the relieving pilot from Australia, he'd done quite a bit of work in New Guinea, so he was familiar with the region, um, the difficulty of uh, flying in the tropics, but um, he was only there for, that was his second. I think that it was his first flight by himself. He must have taken a direct course using the, uh, what I suppose, the radio beam that they use. And instead of flying north and sort of coming in from the northwest, uh, he came in uh, direct and ran straight into the third highest mountain in the Solomon Islands.
2: There was never an official
3: report in relation to the crash, was there? No, we were trying to get some compensation of course, not only for us but for the the other people that were on the flies which we we, we got to know a few of them and uh, the whole thing was that the the report was supposed to have been released then they said it was sent off to some other country for typing and uh, it just never turned up. Did you hear rumors about possible causes of the crash uh Yes, a person who was supposed to give evidence at a court case against a very bad type of individual in in Honiara, who is quite uh, notorious, uh, had people killed and all that sort of thing. So this this person was uh, supposed to give evidence, and he had been kept on a separate island, quite a long way away from anywhere, just to make sure he was safe. And uh, the fact that he wasn't. He was brought over there, put on a plane, and the plane crashed. Uh, people were suggesting that perhaps it was was a sabotage, but uh, I personally don't think that would have been a possibility because uh, we sort of knew all the people who were on board, and there was nobody unusual was there that we didn't know about. There was no
2: evidence apart
3: from that. And there was just rumor and folklore that it was, there was possible sabotage. There was no evidence, no evidence to support at that. All. From you know, from that material you sent me, that plane was a long, long way, of course, wasn't it? Yes, it was. There was a report that was supposed to be prepared after the crash. Yes. And uh, the story was it went to New Zealand to be typed. Was, there, were, there were so many different conflicting stories. It was never, ever produced. Mm. That was the report on the crash.
2: I actually emailed uh, New Zealand Civil Aviation just yesterday, asking yeah. them if they have any knowledge of it. The, The guy from Solomon Island Civil Aviation is being less
3: than cooperative. That's right, yes, I expected that. Uh, All he will say is that he doesn't have the report. I'm going to read him again and put it right on him, but that's all I can get out of him so far. Yes, I I don't think he'll get anything out of it because they wouldn't release it at the time, so uh, Mm. I don't think they'll release it now so many years later.
2: All right, well, listen, Eric, thank you very much for your time. And if I find out any more information, I'll let you
3: know. Yes, I'm pleased that you're actually doing some research into it because it was a, a very unusual sort of set of circumstances. It was the first time they'd had a major crash of that type. Thank, thank you so for it, your thank time. Thank you very much. Bye
2: bye. Eric was able to forward to me newspaper clippings and portions of the book he and his wife wrote, The Noise of a Candle. You will find this material including photographs on the Facebook page Loose Ends, The Singh Family Tragedy. A photograph on Facebook dated 2017 from the Australian High Commission to the Solomon Islands is of a wreath-laying ceremony on Norlene's grave. I was also able to speak with a man who lived in the Solomon Islands for 40 years and now calls Australia home. I call him Solomon Mike. Mike, um, you lived in the Solomon Islands uh, for a long time, right? Uh,
1: this year would be my 40th year in association calling the Solomon's Hope.
2: 40 years? Yeah. You've got a long history with the place then.
1: I still have children and grandchildren living there now. Uh, it's, it's My family, we still consider the Solomon's Hope. Sure. Mike... Do you know a guy from the Solomons who I will call Joe Cool? I don't know him. I do not know him. I've never met him. Uh but I know the story about him. I know of him. And
2: you told me of a nickname for him, right?
1: Yes, I did.
2: Can you just repeat what that was?
1: <laughs> uh on the streets hmm. in Hamiara he was known as Gulling Killer.
2: And why was that?
1: Uh it was pretty much well known on the streets that he had been involved with at least one hit, let's call it. Is that the murder of the guy he owed money to? I I, 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 I can't answer it that way, but it was a long deal gone bad. I don't know the details, and they're sure. all available in public okay. records. But uh, the, yep. the idea was that definitely this gentleman killer, uh, for whatever motivated whatever motivated him, he paid somebody to kill another man.
2: Right. Are you aware of any other matters that he was in, criminal activity that he was involved in, or had you had any rumors of any other criminal activity?
1: Not specifically, but he was generally, I mean, I would say it as simply as this, he was generally a bad guy. So anyone that got yeah. involved with him came out on the bad end of the stick. I never had business dealings okay. with him. Okay. Now, we've talked about the Twin Otter
2: crash over there in the past, and you told me that it's uh, folklore as to what happened. Can you just repeat that for me?
1: Uh, The street gossip would be... You know, it's funny, I'm just going to digress here because the Solomons is a funny place, and gossip is known as the coconut wireless. (laughs) Right. Right. And I mean, and it's cool because people will come up, and somebody's got actual good, new, almost credible street news. And the coconut wireless works very well in the islands, which is just an interesting point. But uh, but it was it was pretty well accepted on the street that the gentleman that had been tried for the murder, the paid hitman uh, hit from Killer had been held in prison at kirakira Kira. and it is good street gossip that he was paid a large uh, his family was paid a largish sum of money to uh, crash the plane
2: right now that plane was a long way off course wasn't
1: it well stupidly off course yes I mean, a long ways, you're dealing with the islands and it's only Kira, Kira to Haniara is not a long flight in the Twin Ops. So I want to say 30, 40 minutes less. And you've done that flight, haven't you? Numerous times.
2: <sighs> mm.
1: So the point is, so for... it's not a long way because when we say a long way, we're going to think in, in miles of some kind. But what it was, was stupidly off course because you got the ocean on one side, the mountains on one side, and the plane hit the mountains.
2: Hmm. Really makes you wonder what happened, eh?
1: Well, again, the street rumours are that the killer, in whatever way, shape or form, was capable of putting that plane down.
2: Sure. Are you aware there was never a Cassie air crash report in relation to that accident?
1: Well, it's a funny thing because I've met you and you talk about it. You and I have discussed this, but I know other people in aviation. And, again, street word is that there was a report done, but there was never a report submitted. So an investigation was undertaken. It wasn't that it was ignored. And there was a document, a summary of that, somewhere produced as far as I know. But it's disappeared
2: i'd love to read it
1: rumor has it i mean I, I i believe you and i have discussed this before but rumor has it that that document went to new zealand that's what i heard
2: mm, that's what i've been told
1: too yeah so whatever happened so the point is this there wasn't an investigation but there is no physical report available to anyone at this stage right now and it's been 20 30 years
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Solomon Airlines referred me to Cassie, the civil aviation in Solomon Islands. They say they haven't got it and they don't yeah. know what happened to it. Civil Aviation Australia said they weren't involved. I'm waiting to hear back from Civil Aviation New Zealand. It's just um
1: Yes, well, crazy. well I mean, and when things like this occur, I mean, we all have suspicious minds. It's part of our sort of shouldn't uh, genetic- that Survival skill you got to be suspicious man. Yeah? so there's a lot to be suspicious mm. about within all of this and i refer to it as the street stories the street gossip the coconut wireless but there's a lot there that can raise suspicions well my friend
2: i'm sure we'll talk again at some point and cool. thank you so much for your help
1: happy to be of help
2: i was fortunate in being able to track down and speak with the solicitor who was acting for the company of the murder victim, Mr T. Incidentally, during the investigation into the homicide of Mr T, a murder list was located, with seven names on it, of people who had crossed Joe Cool. Solicitor Jennifer's name was on that list. Jennifer, you were the solicitor for yes?
0: Uh, Yes, I was. Not in his personal capacity, but he was a director of a uh, logging company.
2: That's right, yeah. And he was murdered in Honiara? He was, yes. He was shot in the head. And from what I've read, your car was firebombed, your office was broken into, and you ended up on a murder hit list.
0: Uh, so I gather. I didn't know until the court case in Haniara that my office had been broken into. It wasn't evident at the time. And apparently that action preceded the decision to firebomb my car to try and
2: put me off acting for the logging company. Uh, OK. There were three men arrested for that murder. Yes, Okay. yes. And one of them I have to call Joe Cool, because he was acquitted, as you know. Yes. Now, there was a fellow by the name of B*** who was convicted as well.
0: Yes, I remember that.
2: And Joe Cool was then charged with conspiring to have him murdered. Are you aware of that?
0: Uh, yes, yes, I remember that.
2: And then they took off the island and we're bringing him back for the trial of Joe Cool and the plane crashed?
0: Uh, absolutely, yes. I remember that. And, of course, there were all sorts of conspiracy theories at the time regarding that crash.
2: Do you know what the cause of the crash was?
0: I did a- actually represent the airline in the inquiry into that And as I recall, um, it is a long time ago, but as I recall, um, it was pilot error and the fact that one of the uh, directional light beacons wasn't working properly. Okay.
2: Did you ever read the report, CAA report?
0: Um, I did, but it's a long time ago and I'd have no idea now what was in
2: it. Okay. So you did did actually read it and, and it concluded that it was pilot error.
0: That's certainly what I remember.
2: OK, because as you would have heard, there was rumours that plane was sabotaged or crashed on behalf of uh, Joe Cool.
0: Yes, I remember those rumours, but certainly at the time I had no doubt, having sat and represented the airline in the inquiry and read, read, reading the report, I didn't have any doubt. It was a newish pilot, and I think that he, and in very bad weather, and I think he had mistaken one beacon
2: for another. OK, because I cannot get a copy or cannot find that report for love nor money. No no one has, knows where it is or who has it or anything like that. But that's another story. Yeah. Were you surprised that Joe Cool was found not guilty of that conspiracy charge or did you not know what evidence was or was not involved?
0: I just can't remember exactly what transpired there. I mean, he was found guilty of something because he was put into prison.
2: From what I've read, the story went like this Joe Cool paid to have murdered because he owed and then.
0: Well, no, uh, that's not the way that I uh, recall it. As I recall it, the money was owed by, as you say, Joe Cool's company to company and we had a court case where court found in favor of this company and after the court case the high court decision we tried to enforce that judgment to get the funds and they weren't forthcoming so I was in the course of taking proceedings against Coles company to wind it up And it was at that juncture that was killed and the attempt to get me to drop the case came about. So that was why they broke into my office to try to get the file.
2: Right. From what you know, Joe Cool was behind all this.
0: From what I know, yes.
2: And he paid to have killed.
0: Yes. Well, that was certainly what the prosecution were alleging
2: was found guilty, from my understanding, of of the... He was. Yes. Yes. Along with the actual shooter, who I think was a guy called... or something like that.
0: Um, I can't remember his name, but yes, there was an actual shooter and... and both of those, as I understand it, were found guilty. And their story was certainly that they were paid to do it.
1: By
2: Joe Cool.
0: By Joe Cool.
2: Then he conspired to have killed the prison guard told his uh, employers instead and they took b- off the island
0: yeah and that's as i understand it
2: yep and then after the plane crash well there's no evidence against joe cool so he the charges were dropped and he fled to australia but you believe he may have been convicted of something he was he was in custody awaiting those charges unless you're getting confused with that
0: well, it could be. I know he was in custody at the time when the attempt was made. When he, well, I say it was alleged that he was making attempts to have killed. Yeah. Uh, but I thought he was actually convicted of something. But that might be an error of memory. It's a long time ago.
2: It is a long time ago. Do you do you know if um, Joe Cool had any previous uh, criminal history in the Solomons?
0: I don't believe that he did, but I had heard that after he came back to Australia that there was a fraud charge against him.
2: There was. There was a, he did time for fraud, and then he did time for kidnapping.
0: OK, OK. Well, I didn't know the kidnapping, but I did know about the fraud.
2: I think we can put to rest the conspiracy <laughs> theories about the plane crash.
0: Uh, that would be my feeling.
2: Well, thank you very much. Other names on the kill list included the Commissioner of Forests and the Solomon Islands Ombudsman. What had they done to have their names added to the kill list? Joe Cool believed the Commissioner of Forests was favouring.
1: Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: Other logging companies over his own. There was much competition between loggers at that time in the Solomon Islands. Probably still is. The ombudsman had written a scathing report in 1990 regarding Joe Cool's company. The ombudsman exposed bribes and corruption involving his company at the highest levels of government and politicians in the Solomon Islands. The report destroyed the credibility of Joe Cool's company in the islands. It seems Joe holds a grudge, Julie noted. I can only comment that, except for covid I would be on the next flight to Honiara searching for the elusive air crash report. As you heard, Solicitor Jennifer confirmed the air crash was caused by pilot error but I would still like to read that air crash report and just make sure Mr B's body was not recovered from the co-pilot's seat. No flight bookings to Honiara are being taken at this time before March 2022. Joe Cool after his extremely good fortune resulting from the air crash, left the Solomons and arrived in Brisbane around 1991 or 1992. Of his first 18 years in Brisbane, Kuhl spent more than 10 of those years in prison. In 1997, he was convicted of fraud-related criminal offences and sentenced to nine years in prison, where he met Max Seeker. Joe Cool seemingly did not have any previous convictions in Australia. I am not aware of the nature of the fraud charges, but I do know nine years is a big sentence for a first offender. Joe Cool and Max Seeker were both paroled in 2001. At some point, Joe Cool approached Max Seeker to be involved in an elaborate kidnapping for ransom plot, where the son of a very wealthy Chinese man would be kidnapped and held for $10 million ransom. Neil Singh was present with Max Seeker when he met with Joe Cool, on at least two occasions that I have been able to find. The kidnapping had been meticulously planned. The offenders were armed with a sawn-off shotgun and three handguns, as well as a taser. In Joe Cool's wallet, police found two driver's licences. One in his correct name, one in a false name, both with his photo. In the boot of Joe's car, police found balaclavas, plastic zip ties, and a bottle of bleach, as well as a wheelchair to transport the drug victim. Other items included disposable gloves, turpentine, wigs, and floppy hats. During questioning, it was established the bleach. Was to dispose of blood and DNA. The turpentine was to burn their clothes and the clothes of the victim to dispose of evidence, including DNA. The gloves were to ensure no fingerprints were left behind. The floppy hats were to prevent their images being caught by CCTV. The wigs were to provide further disguise and to prevent hair from the offenders being left behind, which could lead to their identification. I do not know if episodes of CSI are
3: streamed to prisons, but here is a tip. Maybe they shouldn't be. I wonder if police found a blue bucket. Max
2: Seeker eventually decided not to be involved in the crime. In mid-2002, nine months before the murders, Joe Cool and his three fellow conspirators were arrested. It seems police were aware of the plan. The circumstances provide an understanding why CERT members were involved in the takedown of the gang. The USA referred to them as SWAT, highly trained police dealing with armed and or violent criminals. The gang were all held in custody. There was much discussion between them as to whether someone had informed on them, or whether it was just a well-planned police operation, they considered who may have been informant. Max Seeker was suspected, along with others. So was Neilma Singh. Did Joe Cool think Neilma and or Max Seeker had informed on them? Was he concerned that they would be giving evidence against him? and the evidence coming out of the Solomon Islands was that Joe Cool was prepared to kill people who he deemed a threat to them. Joe Cool knew where to find Max Seeker and Neil Singh, because one of the kidnappers, who was also arrested and held in custody, was a friend of Max Seeker. Max Seeker used to speak with him by phone in prison. They last spoke on Sunday 20 April 2003. The same night seeker was said to have murdered the children. You have heard me read out some of the conversations when Max told his friend of his ongoing relationship with Neilma. The friend considered the possibility Max had informed on him but rejected it. They remain friends to this day and used to catch up regularly before Max's arrest. The friend does not believe Max killed the children. The friend was aware the Asian members of the kidnapping gang did not share his opinion of Max and or Nielma. Joe Kool and the kidnappers were never listed as persons of interest in the murders of the Singh children. And why would they have been? They were in custody at the time and it is common knowledge it is not possible to organise a murder whilst in prison. Apparently. Even though Joe Cool was acquitted on both charges in the Solomon Islands due to the unfortunate and untimely demise of the star witness Mr B, they were not insignificant events. And who has murder hit list drawn up? As I have said, there is no evidence to show Queensland police were aware of Joe Cool's pre-Australian alleged criminal activities. It is certainly the case that if Queensland Police were aware of Joe Cool's past, Max Seeker's defence team were not. They had no idea of Joe Cool's past until I raised it with them. I have read the interviews Queensland Police had with Joe Cool in prison in May and July 2003, just a month after the murders. It's not clear who contacted whom. Joe Cool was demanding a significant reduction in his pending prison sentence over the kidnapping conspiracy in exchange for information about Max Seeker. It would seem by that time Joe Cool and Max Seeker were no longer friends. The interviews were unremarkable for four reasons. There was no discussion with police regarding any previous misdemeanours. In the Solomon Islands, Joe Cool told police he believed Max Seeker committed the murders, but was unable to offer any evidence to support the claim. No statement was taken from Joe Cool. Joe Cool was not called to give evidence at Max Seeker's trial in two thousand and five. There was further contact between detectives and Joe Cool. Again, it is not clear who instigated that contact. On this occasion, Joe Cool was offering to attempt to obtain a confession from Max Seeker for the murders. He was again demanding a significant reduction in his pending prison sentence. He was suggesting release from prison for time already served in exchange for assisting police. Oh, the irony! In 2006, Joe Cool was questioned by the Crime and Misconduct Commission. I have read the transcript of the proceedings. Under Queensland legislation, I cannot tell you what he was questioned about, but I can tell you the questions they did not ask him. The CMC did not raise the matters he was charged with in the Solomon Islands. They did not ask about the murder list. Or any activities of his in the Solomon Islands. And the matters were significant, as you have heard. The Commission did not ask Joe Cool if he had served any prison time in any other country. And the Commission was aware Joe Cool had lived and worked in most Southeast Asian countries and countries in the Pacific. Had the CMC asked that single question, and it was a valid reason why they should have, This investigation may have gone down another one of the myriad rabbit holes I have followed in this investigation. Curiously, the commission did not even ask Joe Cool if he knew any of the Singh family. In particular, if he knew or had ever met Neilma Singh. And that too was a valid question. He had met her. He knew her. She was present when he was planning a major crime. Was the Crime Commission even aware of the concerns Neilma had for her own safety, her life? Queensland Police well knew about Neilma's claims to her mother. They were in Shirley Singh's police statement. And it begs the question, why was Neilma warning her mother about them? Was she that scared? At Max Seeker's trial, the defence barrister cross-examined Shirley Singh at some length regarding the kidnapping plot. This was part of the exchange. In answer to a question, Shirley said neuma told her this.
0: Mum, see this doesn't leak out. I will be killed.
2: And in reply to another question, Shirley said this.
0: I am telling you this, Mum, but don't tell anybody, because if anybody finds out that I know, I may be killed.
2: Barrister Sam DiCarlo asked this question. Mrs Singh, we were talking just before we had the break about what your daughter had said to you about this kidnapping and she said, I think I understood you correctly to say that she was telling you in confidence because she thought if this leaked out even her life was in danger and that worried you. Yes. DiCarlo also had this to say. All right. Did Neilma tell you anything more about their kidnapping? Or did you get the impression when she was telling you that she was actually scared?
0: Yes, she was scared. That is one of the reasons that we had our security alarm set up.
2: And in another bizarre twist, they keep coming. The kidnapping gang appeared in the Brisbane Magistrates Court for the committal proceedings of their charges on Tuesday 22 April 2003 the day the bodies were found. Neither Max Seeker nor Neil Singh were listed as witnesses in those committal proceedings. But did Joe Cool think perhaps they would be? To be clear, all the kidnapping gang were in custody on 22 April, awaiting trial. At this time, there is no evidence Joe Cool or any member of the kidnapping gang were connected to the Singh murders. But why would there be if the Solomon Islands connection was never known and never investigated? Here is another tip. Perhaps police could listen to all the recorded phone calls of the kidnapping gang from prison before and after the Singh murders. Let's imagine for a moment that the kidnappers did organise the murders. Was there a motive? Well, revenge for a looming lengthy prison sentence and the loss of a $10 million windfall does come to mind. Did the kidnappers have means and opportunity to commit the murders? They were in prison, so opportunity was limited. At least one of them was previously associated with organising a murder from prison. There will be a money trial and there will be a recorded conversation trial. The plan would only have been hatched after their arrest. Solicitor Jennifer had her name added to a murder list for simply acting for a company that Joe Cool owed money to and that was only $300,000. Was Max Seeker's name or Neil Masing's name added to a murder list for $10 million? Perhaps because I have dared tell this story, my name will end up on a similar kill list. Maybe my eight years service insert may come in handy, but I don't expect to hear from Joe Cool anytime soon as there is no evidence to connect him to the murders. Which brings me to the Sunday night caller and whether he, they, were involved in the murders. This is what Sonia Pathik had to say in relation to that night caller.
1: A woman has told the Brisbane court she's never stopped wondering about a mystery person believed to have visited her two sisters and brother hours before they were murdered. The victim's older sister, Sonia Pathik, today told the Supreme Court she had been exchanging text messages with Neelma just hours before the murders took place. But she said their conversation ended when Neelma told her someone was at the door and she had to go. Miss Parthig explained that after almost nine years, she's still curious about who was there. The trial continues tomorrow. A distraction
2: according to the Crown. If there was a night caller, the Crown said. And if there was, he left, as there was communication by the deceased after that time. There were only three options available. Neoma was mistaken or lied about someone being at the door. Sonia lied about the matter, or was mistaken, or there was a visitor at the door. I guess the prosecutor didn't really have an option. How do you possibly explain a late night visitor to the door that the police were never able to identify, so you are left with blaming the victims? My thought was, should not the question be, did the night caller stay, leave, leave Return later. Is that the reason the alarm was not set that night? Did the late night caller at the Singhouse on the Sunday night have any connection to the kidnapping gang? Was Max Seeker expected there that night? Were the killers waiting for him and when he did not arrive, they murdered the children instead? Was Neilma murdered to teach Max a lesson or because she was a police informant? Or were the children kidnapped for ransom, for instance, and when the money was not forthcoming, they were murdered, possibly as late as Monday night or even Tuesday morning. Which brings me to the R word. Nowhere will you find the R word in any part of Operation Bravo Settler. It was the Crown case Maxika visited Neilma that Sunday night by arrangement. Neilma was wearing just a t shirt either as an invitation to Max, or because she had been with Max, or she was with Max. Alluring, inviting, she met him at the door. In a fit of jealousy or rage, he strangled her almost to death, perhaps because she would not restart the relationship. Before, during, or after this, he pinned her arms down and caused significant bruising to both arms. Kunal and Sidi slept blissfully on. He then went out to the garage, picked up the garden fork, and returned to continue his crime. He brought Neilma's doona downstairs, and laid her body on it. He poured bleach over her head and neck, which spilt onto the doona. He carried her upstairs, where he bludgeoned her with a fork. He brought a blue bucket and bleach with him to the crime scene. He cleaned up the bleach spill on the tiles. He then dispatched Cornell and Sidi in their beds and placed them all in the spa. He was savvy enough to dump bedding and clothing in the spa to destroy DNA evidence before returning the fork to its resting place. He stole some property belonging to various members of the Singh family. He stole some photos of the male emit, but left others behind. He then fled the scene. It was a Crown case. There was no evidence of sexual assault or of a violent struggle anywhere in the house. Lack of sperm in Neilma's body supported this conclusion. Anything that did not fit this scenario was a distraction. My only thought is, no violence? Seriously? If hair being pulled out of your head in clumps is not violence, what is it? Being forcibly restrained by the arms would also tick that box, I believe. This is where I part company with my former colleagues. I miss the memo about no sexual assault. But I do not suggest you take my word for it. I'll provide the evidence and you can make up your own mind. Like the jury, so to speak. Except you will not be hearing sworn evidence. But you will be hearing material taken from sworn evidence. I am not suggesting the scenario I put forward is perfect. There are holes in it. But I believe it to be a better fit than the crown scenario. Which brings me to the R word. The R word is not in any document associated with Operation Bravo Settler. Over three hundred thousand words in total, as you may recall. Rape. Neoma Singh was not raped before being murdered, according to police. It was evident that Neoma was a target of the killers. Regrettably, it does appear Cunell and City were collateral damage. Queensland Police concluded early in the investigation that Max Seeker was the offender because he was the only one they could connect to Neilma. Whilst I have never seen the phrase domestic violence in any of the thousands of police documents I have viewed, it would appear this was a sad, horrible, tragic domestic violence event. Or was it? In episode 4, you heard from criminologist Anne McMahon. From her studies, she stated the FBI Behavioural Sciences Unit at Quantico would describe these murders as a sex crime. Obviously, Queensland Police did not agree with that definition. That is their prerogative, of course. Anne believed there was a single offender involved in the Singh murders, as did Queensland Police. My review of the crime scene evidence suggests two to three offenders. So, in my scenario, Max Seeker had an accomplice, or he was not involved. I believe Neilma was the target. Were the killers connected to the kidnappers and concluded Neilma was the informant? Or were they expecting to find Max Seeker there as well? Was he the target? He did spend a lot of time there. Was it payback? Revenge? Or was it a kidnapping that went wrong? Got out of control? One or more killers possibly arrived at 8.30pm on the Sunday night when Neilma answered a knock on the door. You have heard taxi driver Bourne say he believes he took a male person to that house on the Sunday night sometime after 11pm. I am undecided whether the Malee commenced downstairs and moved upstairs or commenced upstairs and moved downstairs. But I am leaning to downstairs. Neelma is disturbed or attacked. The killer bleeds. Perhaps gouging from fingernails. Or a bite. A cut maybe. It is necessary to clean the tiled area with bleach. Neelma's blood ends up on the bottle and on the stairs to the first floor. Her hair is found near the kitchen. At some point, Neelma made a run for it from her bedroom. She is caught in the area outside her bedroom and dragged back. Clumps of her hair are torn out of her head and left outside her door to be found by police. Tests confirm the hair had been forcibly removed from the scalp. Further hair was found outside the spa. Would Neilma be quietly submitting while this is happening or screaming like a banshee? She is held down and receives bruises to both arms. The Crown even described the bruising to her arms result from being tightly gripped or held. In the struggle, the killer bled on a doona. More bleach. Meanwhile, the other offender or offenders were dealing with Canal and City. Hence different methods of killing. Shirley and Sonya both said Neilma felt the cold and would never just wear a t-shirt. She liked to wear a tracksuit to bed. And socks. Neilma owned a maroon tracksuit. Her tracksuit pants were found discarded in the master bedroom. Shirley told police the children never discarded their clothes anywhere other than the dirty clothes basket. Ever. Her tracksuit top was found in the spa when the water was drained. Her panties were found tangled up in a blanket or duna in a spa, as was one sock. The other sock was found in Cannell's room. It was very clear from the trial transcript the Crown Prosecutor was across the evidence and so he should be. That was his job. Why therefore did the Prosecutor tell the jury Neilma was wearing just a t-shirt when Max arrived suggesting of course she was expecting him? You may recall one of the points the Prosecutor used to persuade the jury Max Seeker was the killer.
3: Fourth, that the alarm was not armed, prayer sheets printed and Neilma's being in a nightshirt wearing no underwear. Why did the prosecutor
2: not tell the jury about the tracksuit? The pants in the master bedroom and the top in the spa along with the panties. In fact, the Crown was very, very quiet about the tracksuit. It really did not suit their case. Was that non-disclosure accidental? or on purpose. Or the hair pulled from her head. The tracksuit, the head hair, and the R-word are not evidence that Max Seeker did not commit the murders. But it certainly suggests a scenario the Crown did not want to visit. Neelma's clothing found scattered around three locations is significant evidence of rape, or attempted rape, in my opinion. Or are they just more distractions? If the victims were still alive on the Monday and not murdered until the Monday night, neighbours most likely heard Neilma's blood-curdling screams and all reported them to police. Five neighbours. My scenario may explain the goings-on in their house that day and night. When the water was drained from the spa, there were three scum lines visible. Not one. About 10 centimetres apart. The jury never heard that. I only learnt about it after episode 2 went to air. How does that happen? How do you get three separate scum lines in a bath? And how long do scum lines take to form? I wondered if Canell was placed in the spa first and the bath filled to cover him. Scum line. Sometime later, Citi was placed in the spa and covered with water. Scum line. Sometime later, Neoma was placed in the spa and covered with water. A further scum line. More distractions? Again proves nothing in relation to Max Seeker, but it does raise questions. And you have not heard before now that a cigarette butt was also found in the bottom of the spa after the water was drained. Did the killer smoke a cigarette and admire his handiwork? No one, including Max Seeker, smoked inside the house. Max Seeker's DNA was only found on cigarette butts outside the house. Just as they did not wear shoes and or sandals upstairs. Just as they did not consume food or drink upstairs. On that evidence, Max Seeker adhered to the rule of not wearing shoes on carpet, but ignored the rules about smoking in the house and eating in the bedrooms. But don't mention the bloody sandals. And on the Tuesday, Max Seeker ignored the house rules again When he found the bodies, he did not remove his shoes to walk upstairs. So many loose ends. So many unanswered questions. And now we have more. Many more. Perhaps just more distractions. That concludes episode 7, Murder and Mayhem in the South Pacific. I look forward to your comments and feedback on my scenario of how the murders unraveled. You have my permission to be harsh, brutal even. If there is sufficient feedback, and I am especially hopeful I will hear from listeners with some expertise in any of the areas I have touched on, I will devote a future episode to the subject. Please join me in episode 8, which I have called IPH. I was contacted by a criminologist who has been listening to the podcast. Her main area of study is IPH and it is the basis of her academic studies. Intimate partner homicide. I found her comments about the Maxika murders to be interesting and I think you will too. Please rate and review the podcast. It does help with the listing. If you like it, recommend it to others. If you have questions, information or feedback, you can contact me via the following. The Facebook page is Loose Ends, the Sing Family Tragedy. My email address is looseends two thousand and three at Outlook.com. This podcast was made possible with the grateful assistance of the ACAST Creator Network. Appreciation to Bad Bassam for editing, mixing and mastering the episode. Music Before I Go by RKVC. You'll find all my contact details in the show
3: notes at the end of each episode. Thanks very much for listening.